independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. Story helps us weave ourselves into the land and to feel a sense of wonder and awe when we step outside. And so this re-mythologizing, this restoring, to me is a really, really important way that we can find a way of belonging to places from which we would otherwise perhaps feel quite alienated. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Sharon Blackie, an award-winning writer, psychologist, and mythologist. Her highly acclaimed books, courses, lectures, and workshops are focused on the development of the mythic imagination and on the relevance of myth, fairy tales, and folk traditions to the personal, cultural, and environmental problems that we face today. I loved mythology, I guess, since I was a very small child, and I was a lover of fairy tales particularly, but also was given a compendium of, inevitably, in this part of the world, Greek and Roman mythology when I was very young, kind of child's version of it. And of course, I was fascinated by the complexity of it and began to delve more deeply, probably through fairy tales, more into the stories, the old stories and belief systems of my native countries, which were particularly in my family at the time, Scotland and Ireland. And really, I would say that was the first time that I understood that there was something special about these stories, something very different about myths, that they seemed to have some kind of explanatory value, some way of teaching you about how the world is. And as a very curious and slightly intellectually precocious child, I was very excited about that. So I guess it wasn't very surprising that when I began to practice psychology again in my early 40s, I would turn to story as a kind of classic transformational principle on the basis that if you can capture people's imagination, you can show them ways of being in the world that are different from the ones that are failing them. And so it seemed to me at the time like a really obvious combination. Thank you for sharing that. In your piece titled The Antidote to the All-Conquering Hero, you talk about American mythologist Joseph Campbell's notion of the hero's journey and how it's been really influential on society. 
what are some of the key themes and characteristics of this type of narrative for our listeners who may not be familiar? And how does it both play off of and feed into upholding particular cultural stories and values that may be at the core of the troubled times a lot of people find ourselves in today? I should say that I have a great deal of respect for Joseph Campbell and his scholarship and the impression that he made on the world and the way that he introduced mythology to it and made mythology more mainstream, I guess, but I am not a fan of the hero's journey. Campbell was very much a man of his time. He wrote his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, in which he first put forward the hero's journey in the late 1940s. So this was from a society which was pretty patriarchal, where there was very much the cult of the individual. And I think we could probably agree that America particularly has that perspective on life, that it is very much about individual excellence, individual glory even sometimes. And my sense is that the time for that is past. So I believe that our focus on the hero's journey over the past few decades has turned us into a very individualistic society in which individual glory and the story of the individual is much more important than community action, for example. And I think it very much feeds into cultural mythology, which tells us that we must always want more of everything, that we must be slaves to the concept of progress, I suppose, whether that be in terms of our individual trajectory through life or the economy. You know, everything must always grow. Every generation must have more than the previous generation. And I think this focus, this focus on the very linear start to finish hero's journey has actually caused a great deal of damage in our culture. I also profoundly disagree with Campbell that most of the stories in the world follow the trajectory of the hero's journey. They do not. Certainly in this part of the world, we see a lot more focus on what I would call the post-heroic journey, which are really not so much about individual glory, but about community, you know, about engaging the help of the animals, for example, in all the best fairy tales, which are going to sort the grain for you, to help you solve your problem and see the way through. So these are not really heroic journeys. And I think it's one of the things that I am passionate about is trying to persuade people to look back at some of these old stories with a slightly different lens. And I think that they do tell us a lot of useful things about ways to be in a world that is ever more challenged and challenging. Hmm. I wonder about the dynamics between storytelling and culture and whether we might see them as feeding into one another. So, for example, that the dominant narratives in a society helps to shape its cultural values, at the same time that the pre-existing cultural values guide the types of stories that people tell and popularize. So if it has this relationship of reinforcing one another, I would kind of question how difficult it would be to disrupt this cycle. Possibly. I also think, though, that it is really important to look back at some of the old stories through a different lens. So if I could just give you one example. Campbell wrote a lot about the Grail mythology. Um, He wrote it from a particular perspective, and he positioned the Grail quest as a hero's journey. So you have this knight, usually Percival, let's keep it simple, who, you know, goes off on a quest to eventually find the Grail castle 
and attain for himself the grail. And this sounds very heroic, doesn't it? So he's a knight, you know, along the way. He has some toing and froing with other knights. He has the odd battle. He he makes himself into a really good, well-qualified, competent knight and attains the grail. So you can see how it would be easy to see that as the hero's journey looking at individual power and individual glory. But if you go back to the old stories and read them properly, and if you understand the old Celtic literature and oral tradition from which they emerged, that's not what is happening at all, because Percival does not attain the grail by being a fine knight, by swashbuckling, by killing either other knights or dragons. He attains the grail because when he finally gets to the Grail Castle, actually for a second time, but let's not overcomplicate it, and sees the wounded Fisher King, whose wound seems to be associated with the fact that the the land has become a wasteland, he finally asks the compassionate question of the king, what ails thee? And it is very clearly and obviously without question the asking of that question which attains him the grail. Now, that's nothing to do with individual glory. That's growing up into a compassionate human being who has looked at the world, who understands that there are issues with it, and and who wants to make a difference in it that is more than just about his own self. So I do also think that we have, because of our penchant for individuality, for more, for progress, we have tended to look at those old stories and only pick out the bits that seem to fit that narrative. But actually, Mm. most of the narratives are very much more complex. So it very well could be either an intentional interpretation or biased lens or illusion as well, because I think about how in the dominant Western culture, people celebrate self-made millionaires or self-made billionaires. And that's sort of the narrative. But everybody knows that behind these people who achieve something that a lot of people would view as great, quote unquote, success, they, they never do this alone. They need community. Oftentimes, it's accomplished through the hard work of a lot of other people within the company and so forth. So even that story itself should be challenged with something that is much more centered on everyone and everything and every element that made that reality possible. Indeed. And if you go back to the old fairy tales, you find that very, very clearly. So the fairy tale heroine, for example, never manages it alone. She always has a little bit of help from the wise old woman in the woods. It's always the mice that help her sort the grain, you know, and complete the tasks that are necessary for her to go on or a little doll that her mother gave her that's in her pocket. She never does it alone. And I think the other thing that we really need to do is to start asking ourselves whether self-made millionaires is what we want to be in the world. Don't seem to be many of them that are particularly functional or happy. And also, of course, it's killing the planet. So again, we look back to the old stories for the wisdom that tells us how to be. There's a beautiful old story in the Irish tradition and wider throughout um, Britain, actually, called the story of the glass gavelin, which is basically the cow of plenty. And briefly, this is a cow who has milk for everybody who needs it. Anybody who needs milk can take a bucket of milk from this cow freely until one day somebody comes along with a bucket and a sieve and milks the cow through the sieve into the bucket. So the cow has no idea that, because the sieve is always empty, has no idea that this is full and the person takes bucket after bucket after bucket. When the cow figures out what's going on, she effectively flees. She runs away and the cow of plenty is never seen in the land of Ireland again. And these old stories tell us 
something very profound about the values that we need for the world that we are facing today. Mm. Well, you kind of touched on this, but as an antidote to this hero's journey to offer alternate visions of what we could realize and embody, you've written about the eco-heroine's journey, particularly through your book, If Women Rose Rooted. What lack of acknowledgement or imagination, especially about the role of women in the typical hero's journey, did you hope to speak to? And what does it mean then to move into what you call the post-hero journey? Well, Campbell's journey was very much based around stories in which there is a male protagonist. It was always a hero, and famously one of his students, Maureen Murdoch, who subsequently wrote a, a book called The Heroine's Journey, asked Campbell where the woman was in all this. You know, why can the woman take take this journey? And he said, no, that the woman effectively was the place that the hero was trying to get to. Well, neither Murdoch nor I think any woman after her, and certainly not me, find that satisfactory. So the hero's journey, I don't think, is particularly well suited to, to female psychology and to what most women want out of the world. So Maureen Murdoch had a, had a stab at it back in, oh gosh, was it the 70s or the 80s? You know, again, very much a book of its times. Whereas what I wanted to do in If Women Rose Rooted was look at the kind of heroine's journey we needed for the world today in the situation that we found ourselves in. And clearly, we find ourselves in a time of considerable environmental and ecological catastrophe. So when I went back and I looked at the old stories of my land, Ireland, other Celtic countries, Britain, you find that women are very much associated in those old stories and in the mythology with the land. They kind of embody the land. More than that, they are the voice of the land and the kind of moral sense of the land and of the other world that is entwined with it. So in these oldest of stories, it is women who who understand what must be done in the world to keep it in balance and harmony. And so my eco-heroine's journey in If Women Are As Rooted was to take inspiration from those old stories and say to women, if we were that once in our old mythologies, if we were the ones who recognised what was necessary for fertility, for balance to, to happen in the world, how can we be that again? How can we reclaim and perhaps sometimes reimagine those old stories in a way that teaches us how to be now and how to take back some of that power that we had back in the day. And a part of that also entails moving into or moving beyond the idea of heroes altogether, this one savior who who will enter the scene to resolve the problems. So I would love for you to talk more about what you see as significant about the narrative of the post-hero journey that might offer guidance for the troubled times that we're in right now? Well, I think my eco-heroine's journey was a post-heroic journey. You know, it was a form of post-heroic journey. And I'm not a great fan of one size or one model fits all. So to me, the, the, there are various possibilities in the post-heroic journey. And the definition, really, of the post-heroic journey is, is that it's not a heroic journey. It's not about individual glory. It's not linear. So the hero's journey very much has this concept of a beginning and an end. And if you look back at the old stories, they're much more cyclical or almost more spiraling in that you don't go from 
A to B, you often find yourself circling around to the place where you began, but it's not really a complete circle because you've picked up some wisdom along the way, so perhaps you're spiraling out a little bit. So there is that aspect of it. There is the aspect of it that it is very focused on community and on the fact that everybody needs someone to help them through their own individual journey through the world and needs someone to help them with their own individual transformation. But if we want to transform the world, there isn't a single one of us that can do it alone. We cannot individually save the world. We cannot individually even necessarily, although it can be done, but most of us can't make a huge impact on it. We do that through the medium of others. And so these stories that tell us about community and how important that is, the stories of the little girl with the mice helping her and so on, because it's not even the human community that is important here. It's the wider community of life on this planet and the other than humans. The old stories of these lands tell us about animal wisdom and how it's different from human wisdom and how sometimes it's better because they see things or they sense things in ways that we don't. So a post-heroic journey is about community and a post-heroic journey is above all about balance because all of those old stories, particularly if we look in the Irish tradition, are about keeping the world in balance. And when something, when people fall out of balance with the land and begin to take too much or begin to take what is not theirs, then you always find serious consequences. So the world will become a wasteland or the world will be flooded, completely inundated and drowned. So these are good stories. You know, they, they do have consequences. And it is usually the women who help understand, as I said earlier, you know, what is necessary to bring the world back in balance. So all of these stories, and there are many of them, we don't even have to reinvent them. All of these stories are what I would think of as post-heroic stories, because they offer us values that we need today to set our very broken world back in balance. Your new book, Hagitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, takes a lot of these themes that we just discussed further. And you talk about what it might mean for those who've gone through menopause or women in general who are crossing over the midpoint in their lives to reclaim these mid-years and beyond as liberating and alchemical. As you beautifully write, there can be a perverse pleasure as well as a sense of rightness and beauty in insisting on flowering just when the world expects you to become quiet and diminish, end quote. What are some of the mythic figures who've inspired you to rethink the place of women in their mid to elder years to offer alternative narratives to the archetype of the hag? And how would you weave this reclamation of elderhood into the post-hero journey itself? Well, what is interesting, if you look at Western European or, or sometimes Eastern European, I, I cover both in the book, if you look at stories, the old stories, both myths and folk tales, you very, very rarely find an old woman as the main character. You know, the old woman is not the heroine or even the hero, but the old women are always pulling the strings behind the scenes. And they have various really critical roles in the old stories, without which the stories cannot progress. And as I began to look in, into these stories and kind of gather them together and look for elder women characters, I began to notice that there were different sets of archetypes, if you like, which offered up different roles that elder women played in the stories. And I thought to myself, well, this is wonderful because it gives women inspiration 
as they enter the elder years of their life for ways of being, for ways of living in, in, in ways that are meaningful and which also reflect their own particular unique skills. There isn't just one way to be an elder woman in the old stories. There are many ways. So, for example, if we look at menopause, we have all kinds of wonderful archetypes. Most of us, I think, who enter menopause, almost every woman I have spoken to experiences some form of intense rage. <laughs> that just seems to be one of those things that happens. And the question is, how can you, given that that is going to happen to most of us, whether we like it or not, how can that rage be channeled in a way that is useful and functional? And you have the wonderful example of the Furies in Greek mythology, who were old, decidedly haggish-looking women, who were kind of the face of righteous wrath, I suppose. And they went out there and, um, well, in the stories, because you always have to, punished people who had committed great wrongs. So that was kind of rage turned into some kind of righteous wrath, which is a good kind of transformation. You have the wonderful character of the witch, who for many of us, particularly the way that she's been sort of reinvented over the past century, where we look at the witch now as a kind of on the edges kind of mystic who's very much in tune with the land and with herbs and and with the other world and is a more benign character than some of the witches in our older stories. So you, you have the, the character of the alchemist. A lot of alchemists were women back in ancient Greece and Alexandria. We have this image of the alchemist as a kind of old bearded man. Many of the early groundbreaking alchemists were women. And this idea that of alchemy that we are burned down to the essence of us is something that I do believe happens to every woman if she gives it space to happen during menopause. So the alchemist is a lovely archetype. So, and then when you move into elderhood, you know, there's Baba Yaga, the dangerous old woman of Slavic mythology. There are fairy godmothers who are mentors to younger people and sometimes to people of their own age. There's the wise woman in the woods who has the deep vision. There are tricksters and truth tellers. So there are all of these wonderful ways of being in the world where elder women are interacting with the protagonist, the hero or heroine of the story, in ways that are encouraging them to transform in, in ways that are useful to the world, not just about their own individual glory. So these stories to me do, in that sense, feed back into the idea of the post-heroic journey. Mm, there are so many inspirations there. And ecofeminism is a theme in your work that I want to pull out here. Ecofeminism draws parallels between the subjugation of the land and women and femmes in a male-dominated society. And these are metaphorical explorations that do not perfectly translate here, but I think about the discourse around climate change and how our planetary body is nearing the threshold or tipping point of no return. And of course, growing wiser, going through menopause, and crossing into elderhood are beautiful parts of the storyline of life. And I do not mean to say that the stresses and imbalances that the planet is experiencing can be interpreted with that same lens of honor and celebration. Though I try to not separate human civilization and human culture from the earth, because as you acknowledge as well, we are in constant co-creation of place and our future. So I wonder if you may have used the analogy of menopause to think about our place collectively in this sort of liminal time of uncertainty, where clearly change is coming, whether we welcome it or not, changes both happening to us and calling on us to change. And where these symptoms of our planetary distress are also sort of calling us into collective 
contemplation and reflection of where we are right now and what we wish to become? Yeah, there's another big question. (laughs) I would say that one of the things that I write a lot about is the old concept of calling. And this arose, I guess, in ancient Greek times, in ancient Greek philosophy and indeed religion, where the idea was that each one of us, every soul comes into this world with a particular gift or a particularly unique way of being in the world that only we can bring. And it is mostly represented as a gift if we if we do it properly, let's say. And this whole concept of calling is about finding that gift that you have, that way of being which can only ever enhance the world, even in whatever might seem to be like very small ways. You know, it doesn't have to be some grand saving the world thing. It can just be some piece of beauty that you bring, some gift of storytelling that you bring, for example. It can be many, many, many things. And Carl Jung argued that it is the second half of life in which we really come into a sense of our own calling and begin to properly embody that gift in the world. Now, for women, it seems to me that menopause is the turning point at which we break free of all of the shackles of that kind of younger, busy, building um, part of life, which is very necessary and, and, and very, very wonderful in its own way. But we begin to break free of expectations of others. We begin to look at the ways that relationships have or haven't served us. And I really do see it as a time when we are in the crucible, in the alchemical crucible, which is the vessel in which whatever substance is held in it is burnt away to the essence of what it is, is burnt back down to the bones, if you like. And it's only in that process of disintegration that we can begin to look at ourselves and say, okay, you know, what is this essence of me? What is the gift that I bring? And what I'm trying to argue in Haggitude is that we need to let that process happen in menopause. For one thing, even though it's very painful and often very uncomfortable, we have to recognize it as a necessary kind of dissolution, burning back to the bone. But then we're kind of, you know, we come out of menopause. How do we find our calling? And when I talk in Haggitude about finding our inner hag, that isn't just some storybook picture that we are drawn to. It's it's what kind of elder woman most reflects our calling, our unique gift, our unique way of being in the world. And I think all of these elder women, all of the things that we can be in these old stories are for the benefit of the world. For us, yes, you know, for our own personal growth, that is important too. But they all result in some positive transformation of the world, particularly the old stories of Ireland and Scotland, where we have a character called the Caliach, literally the old woman, who is in a sense, the creator and shaper of the land, but also embodies it and is shown in the old stories to be the guardian of the wild places and the wild creatures and the one who holds the balance and tells humans when they've taken enough. Thank you very much. So all of this stuff that happens to us in, in through menopause and in that transitional period, I think better equips us if we're open and aware, and that's why I wrote the book, to become something that can enhance the world and help us find a way through these challenges that we're currently facing. I want to go into grounding 
these myths and stories. In your piece, Belonging to the Land's Dreaming, which that framing is so beautiful, you write, re-mythologizing our places is not just an interesting intellectual exercise, but an act of radical belonging. Like any other species on this planet, we badly need to be grounded. We need to find our anchor in place wherever we might happen to live. Stories can be our anchors, end quote. This certainly brings me flashbacks to my conversations with Dr. John Hausdorfer on becoming placelings and Sophie Strand on rewilding mythology. I would love to go deeper with you here and invite you to share about the key elements of restoring the earth and also the significance in doing so at a time when I feel like the climate crisis is in a sense a relational crisis Mm -hmm. reflective of the dominant cultures is collective states of disassociation and disorientation. Yes, I mean th- th- this this issue of place and belonging has been something that is something that I have been working with and writing about for a very very large number of years, and and it still grounds all of my work because it does seem to me that increasingly we have divorced ourselves from our places, and increasingly people find themselves in places for work or whatever it might be that they don't much have a relationship with that they don't much like. And so they find themselves kind of slightly floating above their places and longing for other places where they're not at the moment. So most of my work over the past at least two decades has been about encouraging people to find ways of belonging to the place where their feet are planted now. And this concept of restoring is interesting. I think it helps us do that because Some places, you know, so let's take America. I have a lot of people from North America who relate to this work particularly because a lot of people feel that their feet are planted in land that is storied by other peoples, you know, by Native Americans, for example, and that their stories are back in a place where their feet aren't planted, you know, back in the old country, for example. And how, how do they do that? And to me, it is very much about finding the stories in the place where they are. A quick example I lived in a part of Ireland where there were no stories of the Kaliak, this old woman who had created and shaped the land everywhere else in the country, everywhere in Scotland where I had been living. She had become a kind of icon to me, you know, a kind of culture, cultural icon and an inspiration. And I couldn't find any stories about her. And I felt really curiously discombobulated because I had always lived in places where there were place names named after the Kaliach or mountains named after the Kaliach or some story, you know, some little local legend told about an old woman called the Kaliach. There was nothing here, which was really very peculiar. So one day I was walking along the river where we lived and there was a heronry in the woods behind our house. And a heron, we startled a heron who took off from the river and screeched as she went. And in this part of the world, herons are grey. And it looked for all the world like an old hag or a witch, you know, with grey hair streaming behind her, shrieking as she took off on her broomstick or into the sky. And I thought, there's my old lady. There is the old lady archetype in my landscape. I called her old crane woman. She was part woman, part bird. Building a relationship in that way, in that imaginal way, with an actual other than human being who inhabited that landscape alongside me made me feel rooted again and linked again to a place where I was finding it a little bit difficult to settle. So this whole concept of looking at our places 
A crow, for example. You know, we all know what a crow is, I'm sure. I'm very familiar with a crow as a physical bird. I know its habitats. I know its nesting behavior. I know its calls. The physical aspect of a crow is just a thing of beauty to me. But whenever I look at a crow, I see another layer. I see a kind of imaginal, mythic layer where I remember all of the shape-shifting women in our old stories who turned into crows, you know, who shape-shifted into crows, goddesses like the Morrigan in the Irish tradition who took on some of that tricksterish wisdom that the animal has. The body is a very unstable site in our old stories. It's, you know, it's very, very fluid. And so I think that these ways of looking at our places, whether they're places that we love or whether they're places that we're not entirely comfortable with, story helps us weave ourselves into the land and to feel a sense of wonder and awe when we step outside. And so this re-mythologizing, this restoring, to me is a really, really important way that we can find a way of belonging to places from which we would otherwise perhaps feel quite alienated. This metaphor works so well. Increasingly, people are becoming systemically uprooted and our awareness and consciousness are also often being held up, quote unquote, in the clouds by the internet these days, especially Mm -hmm. as big tech is driven by the attention economy and constantly strategizing how they can capture and hold people's attention. So I, I think about this metaphor of our consciousness being up in the clouds and now to think about how we can reroute ourselves and our consciousness in place through a lot of these stories that are tied to place. I think also, so yes, I agree with you. I think it is very much a question of finding ways of rooting wherever our feet are planted, wherever we happen to be, whether it's for the short term or whether it's for the long term, and taking no notice of whether we like the places on the surface. Because if we don't do that, we are constantly, as you as you put it, living in the clouds. We're living some kind of virtual reality, not the reality of the places that we're rooted to. And it can be very powerful. I grew up as a as a child, the first 10 years of my life, in a very strange place, a kind of post-industrial and post-industrial edgeland in the northeast of far northeast of England, where we had beautiful dune-covered beaches. But when you looked out down the land from those beaches, you know, you could see smoking chimneys of steel works and chemical works. And for most of my life, I thought that was so ugly. You know, I hated that place. It was really, really ugly. I couldn't get to grips with it. And then I started to think about actually how I had been as a child traveled back there and found the same kind of magic. What I did when I was a child is I looked at those towers, you know, and I I visualized the smoke coming out of the the industrial towers as dragons. There were dragons in those chimneys. There were kind of pitchfork-shaped contraptions somewhere in some of the steelworks. And I would think, oh, there are devils there carrying pitchforks. And, And somehow that ability to just see a story even if it was quite a slightly frightening one to a young child, to see a story, even in the places that later I thought of as ugly, was about rooting. It was about finding the magic and the awe and the wonder in places that were even inclined to think of as, you know, aesthetically unpleasing. So re-mythologizing entails both learning the myths and stories tied to place where we are so we can deepen our intimacy with our unique landscapes and communities. And also the ele- the other element you talk about is allowing the stories 
to have the fluidity to constantly adapt and change. And so this then brings me to think about how, to me, it's become quite clear that all of the systems that the dominant human societies have created, whether it's knowledge, economy, politics, or infrastructure, and so on, are becoming more and more immutable, locked in, and homogenized, while also being more more and more rooted in sort of universalized abstractions rather than the much more diverse and dynamic living world. And so I've been curious to consider whether the planetary distress we are facing is also a symptom of this friction between the calcifying ways of the dominant human civilizations and our greater shared planetary body in which we learn that change is the only constant. Absolutely right. I think that is very much the case. We we have a terrible fondness for dogma and dogma restricts us from doing what I believe is the the entire point of life, which is to transform and to change. I have no fear of transformation. I've always believed that that was what it was about, life. And I wonder sometimes whether that's because as a child, you know, I grew up with all of these stories in which things were always shifting their shape. As I say, the, the body in our old stories is a very fluid, unstable site. And I think that's what we're here for. We're here to, to grow and to transform and to try things out that that might be better. And unfortunately, I think it's particularly a religious phenomenon, to be honest. I think that the great monotheistic religions that write down rules and regulations for living, which might have been entirely relevant in a desert country 2,000 years ago, for example, but really are not functional now. Nevertheless, because they were written down, they must be adhered to. You know, We can't possibly change these great old texts and ways of being in the world. And so I think as a culture, we find it very, very difficult to to really love our transformations, which are so necessary. The world transforms itself every year through the seasons. It dies and it's reborn. It's a natural process of life, and yet we have managed to think ourselves into such terrible rigidity. And that's another reason why I believe that these old stories are some of our greatest teaching and learning tools that they show us this cyclical, constantly shape-shifting transformation that we undergo, that the world undergoes, that other than humans undergo throughout their lives. And it's one way of breaking through that kind of stagnant imagination that we run the risk of of growing up with all of us through our education systems as well. Mm. And to that point, just to add to this, as we recognize the importance of place-based knowledge, storytelling, and awareness, I think our crisis in form, as Dr. Bio Akomolafe names it, can also be seen through how the dominant cultures tend to value, quote-unquote, formal accredited education coming mostly from inside of you know, sheltered classrooms validated by standardized exams over informal, non-uniform education coming from ever-changing community dynamics, ways of the land, and beyond, and how dominant institutions tend to value knowledge acquired through controlled and fixed settings using lenses of objectivity and separation over knowledge that cannot be universalized or generalized, that is much more place-based, relational, and context-dependent. So as we ponder ways to reorient ourselves towards collective healing and thriving through becoming more deeply rooted in place and time, it feels pretty pertinent as well to rethink what does count as formal education and credible knowledge and what has otherwise been excluded from those validations. 
I don't know if this might stir up anything else for you that you would want to bring into this conversation. I guess I'm probably going to to repeat something of what I've said, but I would I would say nevertheless we do need some of that formal education. It's not a question of one or the other to me. You mm-hmm. know, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are some forms of knowledge that have come through very formalized scientific processes, for example, that are intensely valuable to us and to the planet. So I think we have to also be able to honor those systems whilst recognizing that they're not enough. And I have railed against the fact on on many an occasion that when I was a child, I was taught when I went to school that, you know, imagination was bad, or or perhaps rather that something you were allowed to be imaginative in some ways, but not other ways. So you could be imaginative if you were writing an essay in English literature or if you, you know, wanted to to think about a scientific experiment. But if you were imaginative in a story-based way, if you made up stories, then you were making them up, you know, they weren't real. And I think that the Western focus on the imagination increasingly uh, as an unreal, slightly perverse faculty is also a great part of our problem because all of the old cultures had this idea of an imaginal world. The Sufi traditions, the ancient Greece traditions, you can see it in the old Celtic traditions, this idea that somewhere between the world of the the intellect, you know, our thought processes, and the physical world is this kind of symbolic, metaphorical, imaginal world, which is as real as those two. And that it is only really by interacting with a symbolic imaginal world that we can change the physical world. It's kind of, you know, you have to get through, the, the intellect has to pass through the symbolic and the imaginal in order to have a significant impact on the physical world. So this, the romantics were very fine, I think, particularly people like William Blake in bringing forward again the power and the necessity of the imagination. And I think that this is one of the things that we could usefully teach kids in school that you know, alongside formal systems-based educational systems, which are also so necessary, the power of the imagination, whether it be kind of looking at the world mythically, whether it be engaging in an imaginal way with a crow or with a heron or with a tree or whatever, all of these are skills and practices that I think we could usefully add to our education systems to, to be able to transform the world. Because if we can't imagine really imagine a better world. And if we can't really imagine ourselves as better in the world, then nothing is going to change. It all starts with the imagination. It all starts with the ability to to imagine transformation. Well, the most enriching conversations for me are usually ones like this that leave me with so many more things to ponder and think about. So thank you so much for everything that you've stirred up and inspired within me. Before we wrap up our main conversation, I'd love to welcome you to share anything else that is on your mind right now that you wish to leave with us and any calls to action or deeper inquiry that you might have for us. Two things, I suppose, that I would encourage people to do. One one is to go out there and just talk to anything that you pass by. Go out into the world and converse with it. Talk to the crows, talk to the trees, talk to the flowers. I think there is a sense in which by entering into relationship with our places, with the world around us in this way, we, we keep them alive. 
we keep them alive and we keep ourselves alive. So just being in the world, reacting to the world uh, as if it were as alive, as animate as we are, is a kind of daily practice that I pursue. It's kind of second nature now. Some people think I'm a bit weird, I suppose, when I'm more interested in talking to a crow than to a human being. But it is, you know, it's kind of like you wouldn't pass a neighbor in the street without saying hello. Don't don't pass a, a tree that you pass every day without saying hello and entering into conversation. And the second thing would be in, in, in this context of finding calling and our unique gift, which I think is one of the most important things that we can do, particularly as we approach the second half of life. It's about really, it always comes from what makes you feel good about yourself and about the world. Calling is, is never a painful thing. I think it's always about a real passion and you can tell a passion by what makes your body feel good, what makes you feel good in your body, in your head, and what makes you feel good about the world. So those are, again, two practices, two kind of ways of of being in the world that I think we could do a little bit more of. What has been an impactful book that you've read or a publication that you follow? The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, which is also one of the most beautiful titles on the planet, by Sue Monk Kidd, which revolutionized my way of thinking about the divine feminine at a very, very important turning point in my life, mid midlife. Mm. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Talking to crows, I would say, uh, just what I've described, I kind of, um, I got ahead of myself there, but but going out into the world and acting as if everything around me is, is a neighbor and a friend. Mm. And what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment? It's always stories. It's always stories. It's finding the stories. It's finding new stories of new places that, that have been important influences in my life to help me come to understand why they were such important influences, whether that be the place I was born, places I've lived but haven't quite got to grips with, or places I've just visited that have had a big impact. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Sharon's work, you can head to SharonBlackie.net. And again, Sharon's new book is Hagitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It has been an incredible honor to be in conversation with you. For now, what final words of wisdom do you want to leave with us as Green Dreamers? I would like to actually just briefly quote T.H. Lawrence in a very beautiful poem that has had a big impact on me. And it basically says, when we get out of the glass bottles of our ego, and when we escape like squirrels turning in the cages of our personality and get into the forests again, we shall shiver with cold and fright, but things will happen to us so that we don't know ourselves. Cool, unlying life will rush in. And that to me is just 
that's a philosophy of life, I guess. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Power by India Blue. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gan. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.